You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask him, What is this name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, what God sounds like, but that might have been close. (laughs) All right, my friends. I'm wondering, do you remember the last time you were called the wrong name? I don't mean like, you know, like the slip of the tongue where they're like, oh, sorry, Megan. Um, I mean like just flat out called the wrong name. I uh, did an interview a while ago, and so I'm interviewing this person for this job, and they get onto the Zoom, and uh, and he goes like, "Uh, hi, Michael. And I'm like, all right. (laughs) That was a choice. Uh, (laughs) To be honest, though, Michael is better than, like, Jamal, because I think there's something, like, extra wrong about being called, like, like, misnamed, but, like, culturally named. Like, you're just kind of like, I don't really... (laughs) But there's something painful that happens, right, when we're misnamed, like... For some of us, that's a seismic rift. Like, you feel it the moment it happens. And maybe that's because maybe you have a hard-to-pronounce name, and so people just can't be bothered to make the effort, and you're just constantly reminded of that. Or maybe your name's from outside of your cultural context, and you find yourself, it's just another blatant reminder that you don't belong. Or maybe you've had to fight too hard for your name. just to have it carelessly handled. Now, for other of us, it's just a minor annoyance. Like, it happens so infrequently that it's not of much consequence, or maybe we've just come so used for us calling us the wrong name that we just kind of settle for anything that people will call us. But I've yet to meet a single person where being called the wrong name doesn't elicit at least the tiniest of pinpricks that jab of disassociation, that feeling of being unknown or worse, like mistaken. But now, when's the last time you were called the right name? And I don't just mean like you referred to correctly, but you know, like those moments when your person just says your name and it just like slips on, like like it fits, like your favorite shirt. I have uh, a dear aunt 
whose uh, birthday is three years, or three, three years, three days uh, after mine, and every year, um, it's like this tradition. She either I like, call or text me first thing, and she always just says, and none of you, this is not a permission to you. This is only her. She says, hey, patty cakes. <laughs> She's been calling me that for 35 years, and she gets to keep calling me that. But I actually have kind of grown to love it. It just fits, and there's something about it. I think being called the wrong name, like, it can be grounding, right? It can be, like, therapeutic. It can be healing. Like, there's this sense of location and embodiment that occurs when someone reaches across the void and tells us or calls us who we are. Uh, there's the novelist Jodi Picoult. She says this, when you love someone, you say their name different, like it's safe inside your mouth. And I would argue this, that <clears throat> this is true, that being called the right name matters so much and being called the wrong name hurts so much because our names aren't just consonants and vowels and vocal cord vibrations. Like, that's just the mechanics. Our names are, in essence, the context of us. The things we are called often tell stories about us, and they often tell even more stories about the people who call us that. Uh, my son is adopted, and uh, <clears throat> for the first month of his life, he was in the NICU um, before we came and took him home from the hospital. And for that month, he was just baby boy. And then we came, and we gave him his name. His first name is James, which is the middle name of both of uh, our fathers, my wife and I. And then his middle name is, one of, is the name that his birth mother was going to give to him. And then his last name is Boatwright. It is my family name, and he has been carrying it on in this lineage. And so this baby boy, in an instant, has a history and a context and a fullness and a people. Now, naming is this recurring, it's this, it's this recurring concept in the Bible. We make a lot about namings. In Genesis 2, actually, one of the very first things that God does, uh, task man with, is he says he brings all the animals to Adam and he has them name them. And Genesis 16 is the first time that God is given a name by a person, and it's actually uh, this runaway slave, this woman who was on this treacherous, disastrous path, and so she runs away from it, and in the middle of a desert, she meets a God who says, daughter, where are you going, and from where are you coming from? And he tells her that he has a better vision and a path for her life, and he calls her to go back because he's gonna work out something. He's gonna make a name of this baby that she was forced upon her. And she says, truly, this is the God who sees me, however I. 
Genesis 17, uh, Abram is this man who is going to be the predecessor of this lineage of God's people, uh, this forefather, if you will. And then there's this pivotal moment where God comes into him and he makes a covenant. He makes a promise with him and he's saying, if you will follow me, make me your God. If you will do that in your flesh, then I in return will make a mighty nation out of you. And he says, I'm going to change your name. You're no longer going to be Abram. You will become Abraham. He changes his name. Matthew 1, uh, we learn about Joshua and Mary, these two young kids who are in love, and then she gets pregnant by an angel, and that's hard to swallow, you know? (laughs) But Joshua has this dream, and he has this vision of these angels that says, yeah, she's telling the truth. And matter of fact, this is your son. Raise him as your own, and you're going to call him Yeshua. Joshua in today's world, Greek, it's Jesus, and it means God who saves. Matthew 16, Peter, who's a disciple of Jesus, this like continual screw up, has messed up once again, and in the aftermath of this real big oops, Jesus is restoring him. And he says, you're no longer Simon Barjona. Like, you're going to be Cephas, Peter, this rock on which I build my church. And he gives him this new name. And there's all these pivotal moments throughout Scripture where God fundamentally changes the direction of the person, and he wants them to be constantly reminded of who they are and whose they are. He gives them a new name. So when they hear their name, they know their name, and more than that, they know their story. They know the place and the path that they're on. So naming then, just as it does today, encapsulates history, lineage, hopes, and intimacies. Naming is the oldest form of storytelling. There's a thought that we as people, we're really just an amalgamation or a collage of all the places we've been, the people we've known, the things we've experienced. So if that is true, then our names are basically a shorthand for a myriad of dreams and hopes, events and connections, narratives unfurling across time. You represent stories upon stories. That's what your name holds. And if that is the case, then to share our name with someone is to invite them into a book too heavy to hold. We're inviting them into the story of us and the people who named us and the people who named them. We're starting from now until Advent, a series called Hello, I Am. And this is a series exploring the names of God. And not just exploring the names of God, but exploring the stories behind them. And that through that, we can learn the character and the nature of God. And the hope is that we'll draw, learning the names of God will draw us into closer intimacy with our creator. And it will add richness to the, the way that we relate to him. My name is Patrick. My name is Daddy. My name is Love. My name is Son. What's your names? Today we're going to focus on the context of God giving his name 
to his people. This is actually the first time in scripture where God explicitly names himself. And before we dive into the passage, I want to give you a little context for it, right? So up until this point, obviously the word God is used throughout the Bible, but that word there is like El or Elohim. It is not so much a name as it is just a title. It's like senior or sir or, you know, uh, the God. It's, it actually means God's. And it applies not just to our God, but any God. See, the, the, the Israelite people, ancient antiquity people, Jesus himself, us now, we believe that there's more than just like God, but there are these lesser spiritual beings that exist, um, of which our God, Jesus is the head. He is the God above all, right? And there are these lower gods that we all can refer to as like El. That was the Hebrew name for them, right? And so we come into this point where now Elohim comes in and he wants to introduce himself in a deeper and richer way. And he does this to a man named Moses. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Moses, his name means to be drawn out or to pull out. And that is a reference to his story that started in a basket down, or down the river now. Because he, uh, during this time, when Moses was born, uh, the people of Israel were under the rule of the Pharaoh, and they had become so numerous to become dangerous. And so Pharaoh, worried about these slaves uprising, says that he must kill all the firstborn, uh, all the, the male children in all of the land of the Hebrews, and that is to, to have population control and to also put them back in fear and alignment. So he sends out this decree, and uh, Moses' mother gives him to his sister who puts him in a basket and sends him down the river in the hopes that he will be found safe. And he is. He's found by the princess. And she pulls him out of the water and she gives him the name Moses. And then she actually calls his sister to get a woman to go tend for him, to be his, his wet nurse. And that ends up being his mother. And Moses grows up an adopted prince in the kingdom of Egypt, and he, he knows well his Hebrew roots, and he also knows well the pain of his Hebrew people. And so there's a story that leads up to the moment we're going to dive into where Moses encounters an Egyptian slave master uh, belittling and, and berating and beating up and assaulting a Hebrew, and he gets so angry when he intervenes, he kills this Egyptian. And then as word spreads, he heads out and he runs away from danger. He's a felon and he finds himself in the desert. And he's kind of just doomed for anonymity. So he's out there in the desert, he's tending his sheep, and then one day he comes across a burning bush. And this is where Moses and I are culturally different. Um, because my people, we just like walk the other way. Like, we don't, like the scary movies, we're not the ones that go like, what's that creaking noise? No, we're getting out. Others, they walk towards it, no judgment. Um, but Moses walked towards this burning bush, and not only does he find this burning bush that isn't being consumed, but the scriptures say this bush speaks, and it calls him by name. And not only does it call him by name, but it gives him a calling. It gives him a path. It says, Moses, I am God, and what I want you to do is go back to Egypt. And I want you to petition for the freedom of my people. And then to my people, I want you to call them under your leadership and lead them out of bondage. But before we go into our passage, I want you to get this moment and why it's so fraught. 
not just the burning bush. That would have been enough. But no, there's this moment here after he's given this commissioning that Moses has this crisis. And it's on two fronts. The first front is this. This bush, put that aside, has called him to go before Pharaoh and say, give up your slaves and your precious resources. That typically does not end well for people. The second problem, which I would say is almost more fraughtful than the first, is that the last time Moses tried to help his people, they threw it in his face. See, Moses murdered that Egyptian who was harassing a Hebrew, and later on, the scriptures say, he finds two Hebrews quarreling. When he confronts them about this fight, one of them turns to him and says, what, are you going to kill me like you did that Egyptian? And it's at this moment that Moses becomes fearful because what he thought had done into the dark had in fact made it to the light, and this is very dangerous, and so that's why he heads out into the desert. And so now, here is God asking him to both stand before Pharaoh and ask for freedom, and then stand before an ungrateful people and ask them to follow him. And Moses is rightfully anxious and afraid. So in 13, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, I want to dive into these names a, a little bit because when you read it, it just says like, I am, and it just says God a lot, but there's actually a whole heap of subtext and context that's happening underneath uh, our English translation. And the first is this. We've talked about how the title El or Elohim is a name used traditionally for God. But here what God does is he gives himself not that title. God here is not referring to Elohim, but it is a different name. It is a form of the verb, the Hebrew verb Hayah, which is to be. And so, God says, when he says in verse 14, tell them I am who I am. This is the first person singular where God is saying this, I am the one who is and who will be. That is what his name means. I am who I am, the one who is and who will be. Now, Moses is like, I can't go and say, like, I am the one who would be. That's confusing. And so God clarifies in 15 when he says again, uh, uh, or verse 14, when he says again, or say to the Israelites, the Lord, in verse 15. This again is the same word. This is that verb, hayah, but he says it this time in the third person. And so God tells Moses to go tell them, he is, who he who is and who will be has sent you. This is the name that God gives himself. In short, Yahweh. There's a lot of context around how we move from he who is and who will be into Yahweh that we will save for a later week. But this name Yahweh, it's a tricky word that's hard to really relate and define, much like the God who gives it. God essentially drops the entire story of the universe as his calling card. If they want to know who I am, tell them that I am. 
I am. The mutuality that we share with God is that our names locate us, but where we separate and are distinct is that while our name locates us in relation to the people using it, God's name does not. God's name is distinct. I am dad because my son calls me dad. I use Siri in the car and I say, uh, I try to say call Catherine. My wife is with a hard K, not a C, okay? Don't matter what I'm saying. But I say Catherine and Siri hears Kathy and all manner of other names. And so what I have learned to say now is Siri, call my wife. And I've put it in there and I've told Siri that my wife is Catherine. And so I say, call my wife and it calls Catherine. She's my wife in relation to me. But when God says, I am who I am, he is saying, I am not in relation to you. I am not defined by my proximity or relationship to you. I am distinct. That word Yahweh is not rooted primarily into his relationship with us, yet the name implies a full external existence without beginning, end, or change. I am who I will be. I am. To me, this is very comforting, and I'll tell you why. There's not many things I can lean on. There's a lot of weight in this body. And so I have to kind of be careful before I just prop up on something. Trust me, I've learned my lesson the hard way. And when you live in that kind of reality, having to just kind of be mindful of the things you lean on, it's so comforting when you find something that can hold your weight. When you find something that you can prop up on. And the thing about having a God who is distinct from me, who is not defined by me, is it means that he may be a God that can handle my weight. And he, I can't move him. This is a God who can't be bought, swayed, folded, or manipulated. He is who he is, who he will be. I am. Now, uh, I don't know if you guys have saw the news. 11 Madison Park, for those of you who don't know, is one of the uh, top restaurants in the world, and it's located here uh, in New York City in Manhattan. And they closed briefly during uh, the pandemic, at the start of the pandemic. And when they reopened, the chef, Daniel Hume, made kind of a, a, an earth-shattering, uh, at very least a, a sector-shattering announcement that they would not come back as uh, this purveyor of all sorts of fine meats and delicacies, but they would now be a vegan restaurant. They would still charge you $335 a person, <laughs> but now it's just vegetables. And so this new meal, out, out has gone the duck, out has gone the steak, and in has come the rice porridge and beets in a clay pot. And apparently this eggplant, half an eggplant with little roasted eggplants on top makes it look like a little canoe. <laughs> and Pete Wells, a New York Times food critic, recently went and he wrote a review of the new 11 Madison Park. 
And he writes about the, not just the restaurant, but he also writes ab about this change to go vegan. And he, and he talks about um, how he's not really sure that Dan Hume hasn't really explained why the politics or the decision that led to him to go vegan. Like, is it to save the planet? Is it to change the industry? Like, what are you really trying to do? And then he ends his review with this paragraph. Eleven Madison Park still buys meat, though. Until the year end, the menu offered to customers who book a private dining room includes an optional beef dish, roasted tenderloin with fermented peppers and black lime. It's some kind of metaphor for Manhattan, where there's always a higher level of luxury, a secret room where the, eat, the rich eat roasted tenderloin while everybody else gets an eggplant canoe. We live in a city where for the right price and with the right influence, any closed door can open and any law can change. So to know that there is a God but which that doesn't apply, that he can't be moved, he can't be bought, he can't be swayed, he can't be hustled, he is forever who he will be, which is righteous and good and over all. Well, that is great news for me. We do not sustain God. So the hope then is that he can handle the weight of my pain and the pressure of my potential unfulfilled hopes and dreams. Yahweh sits above it all. There is no higher level or secret door. The fact is, he doesn't revolve around you. And I wonder, beloved, have you become tired of being the center of your universe? <laughs> Has the gravitational pull of surrounding everything around your lusts and desires, as our, as our culture tells us, has it left you feeling like everything is on the verge of falling down? What does it mean to worship a God who stands distinct and is immutable? I think that gives us a couple of invitations and ones that I see in our scripture text. For some of us, maybe we feel like those Israelites imprisoned and in bondage, our livelihoods threatened. The beautiful thing about this distinct God is that he doesn't just use his distinctness to keep away from us. No, in his distinctness and in his set-apartness, in his above-it-allness, he comes down into our problems. We don't have to seek him out. He comes trying to break us free from the things that enslave us. And so today, maybe the invitation is for you to come into the relationship of a God who is above what you're facing and able to enter it, desiring to enter it and to break however big of a chain you're under. Maybe today you're in a desert life. You're wandering, you're hiding, there's no clear direction. 
you're kind of fumbling through the results of this pandemic or the results of being in our late 20s and early 30s. And like Moses, it seems like you're headed for anonymity, and yet there stands a God above it all, and he sees a path, and he has a calling, and he has a mission, and he's empowering you into it. What does it look like today to receive that invitation into a path and into a calling? Yahweh is above it all so that he can see it all and call you into it. Maybe today you've been called, and that's kind of the problem. Because whatever you've been called to, whether it's this new job or new status as a parent or this new relationship or old relationship, you have constantly found that you are not up to the task, that you can't do it on your own. You have the trauma of when you've tried before and it's bitten you in the butt. And so you stand like Moses and go, in whose name and in whose power can I go? Because mine won't cut it. And to you, Yahweh says, use mine. It's way more effective. He calls Moses not to go and tell him, you are Moses, the one that God has sent. No. He says, Tell them that I am has sent you. I am. Go in my name. So Yahweh stands ready above it all today to empower you to do what you are rightly true cannot do on your own. So what does it look like today to accept that invitation? Our worship band is going to come back up. And we're going to move into this time of response. And I just want to do a, a, a couple of things. Let me tell you some of the ways we're going to respond here. Uh, the first you'll see are, are these prayer rugs right here. Uh, and again, like we always say, there's nothing magical about these. You won't go on any carpet rides. Um, <laughs> But this is just a place and a space for you to do with your bodies what God is doing in your heart. So sometimes we just kind of need to get out of our seats and get on our knees and say, God, here I am, take me. Sometimes we just need to fall flat on our face and say, I, I bow before you, Yahweh. I don't want to be the center of my universe anymore. That's a place and a space for that. There are going to be people up here who are willing and able and desirous to pray for you. People who are mature enough and qualified, and we've, we've, we've trained them to be able to come and help bear the burdens that you may be facing. And so, please avail yourself. They would love to help get under any burdens that you have. The band's gonna lead us in songs, and we're gonna worship, and we're gonna sing, and we're gonna give praise to a God who stands above it all. Because there's something magical, there's something, there is something powerful and intrinsic that happens when we confess with our mouths, when we put words to our heart, that there's something bigger than us. We just might start to believe it. And if we start to believe it, we might live like it. We don't have to keep carrying our things. And then lastly, our desire here, one of the things we love is to be a people who bless and honor. 
And we've been talking about the importance of a name. And I don't know. I, I just, just humor me. I would love for you when we stand up here in a second. You can go ahead and actually just stand up. Stand up. I'd love for you to do something maybe kind of weird. You'll survive. I would love for you to look at the person next to you, and I would love for you to get their name. If you can't pronounce it, ask them to repeat it until you can. And then I wonder what would happen if we would take that name and we would just give them a very simple blessing. My buddy Roger. I love Roger. Or if you look like and you say, hey, Roger. Roger, in the name of Yahweh, I bless you. It's that simple. It's very quick. It won't hurt you. But it may embolden them. So in a second, I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing. We're going to get on these rugs. We're going to come receive prayer. You can even pray for each other. We've been doing it, and it's fantastic. I highly, I highly recommend it. And then you're going to turn to the person next to you. You're going to get their name if you don't know it. And you're just going to use their name to say, Hi, Beck, in the name of Yahweh, I bless you. Got it? Great. Let me pray for us. Yahweh, God above it all, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are a being we can lean on. Great is your faithfulness. And thank you that you don't treat your distinctness and your above it all as something to be, something to be grasped. But you use that power to come into our mess. break our chains to give us a vision to empower us to do what we can on our own may we receive your invitations today and may they bring life where we've only known death bless us as we bless our brothers and our sisters we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.